don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 8. Today we were talking about Children of Men from A Year of Our Lord 2006, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, based on a novel from the 90s, I believe, by an author called P.D. James, which isn't very important, but um, it deviated significantly from the source material, from my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and unlike some of these other films we've done, um, like Wally, but like some of the other ones we've done, like First Reformed was a, a box office flop, didn't make a whole lot of money, or didn't make any money, actually. Um, had a budget of $76 million, made $70 million at the box office, um, so wasn't really beloved. Right, but also, um, you know, First Reformed probably never expected to, because just because of its genre, whereas Children of Men is a dystopia with, you know, at the time Clive Owen was a pretty big deal. He was a, a recognizable leading man, and... Uh, you know, you've got this big sort of dystopian end of the world, Clive Owen, Michael Caine, Michael Caine, yeah, Julian you, Moore. Yeah, you think it's uh, there's there's higher expectations at the box office, whereas First Reformed, I, I can't imagine anyone was like. I guess maybe there was some uh, Oscar, you know, some sort of hope it would get gain notoriety through. Oscar recognition, yeah, a big award season, right, or right, or like award season sleeper. Um, whereas Children of Men just sort of fizzled out, um, and it's you know it's it's well liked, it's reviewed well, right? It's thought of as being technically brilliant. Um, oh yeah, and also content wise is an incredibly unique uh, and you know arresting movie, mm-hmm. and it's coming after. It's the movie Quran made after Itu Mama Tambien, so I guess it's probably his first English language film. Yeah, I, I so. could be I could be wrong about that. There may be one I'm forgetting, but in terms of what he's known for, uh, Itu Mama Tambien is is the the predecessor, and I think we'll get into this a little more. But Zizek talks about uh, Itu Mama Tambien and Children of Men as sort of linked stories and in, in their spirit yeah um, he directed great expectations before oh you know what he also did I'm totally wrong about that because he did uh, the little prince or is it the secret not the secret garden it's the little prince or the little princess yeah, yeah. in the in the 90s uh, yeah so he, <laughs> but he he was bouncing back and forth, uh, which he still kind of is because Roma's in Spanish, but it's just um, true to the setting. Right. And all, the cinematography, which we'll we'll talk about a little bit, is done by Emmanuel de Besky, um, who is sort of king the of the cinematography. cinematography. Yeah, um, one best cinematography three years in a row: uh, twenty thirteen for Gravity, twenty fourteen for Birdman, and twenty fifteen for The Revenant. So he works with a crone and, and you read to and a number of uh, Terrence Malick. Yeah. Um, All the people who are known for making beautiful films. Yeah. He even did Sleepy Hollow, which I was kind of like geeking out about before we started because that was a movie that I 
was in it's love Tim with Burton, when I was, right? Yeah, yeah. When I was like twelve, whenever that came out, I thought it was like the coolest movie ever yeah. made. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's uh, the technical pedigree of this film is undeniable, but it didn't really connect with audiences as much as it. I would say probably would today, based on the content, it would be a lot more controversial today as opposed to just being thought of as a some sort of dystopian, um, you know, one-off. And just to illustrate that a little bit further, I have an article from the British Film Institute, uh, Children of Men, Why Alfonso Cuaron's Anti-Blade Runner Looks More Relevant Than Ever. Uh, the subheading is uh, a subtitle, It Flopped on Release in 20, 2006. But Children of Men's Dystopian Visions of Britain in 2027 Feel More Troubling Every Day by uh, Stephen Dalton. And just this one quick passage. It says, Watching Children of Men today with its stark scenes of caged Fujis forcibly detained in militarized border camps, it feels unnervingly like a grim prophecy of our current climate, a world reshaped by right-wing populism and homeland insecurity. In August 2016, the political scientist and best-selling author Francis Fukuyama claimed Quran's film, quote, should be on people's minds after Brexit and after the rise of Donald Trump. Just weeks later, Vanity Fair's chief critic Richard Lawson suggested Children of Men, quote, should be required viewing for anyone grappling with feelings of dread about modern civilization, which is to say probably everyone. Um, so just as that says, I think it's undeniable that even, you know, this film comes out in 2006. Um, and here in 2019, its themes are just as, if not more, relevant to us uh, than they might have been back then. And, you know, as we're watching this, um, uh, watched it with my wife who had never seen it, and she said, it doesn't look like it's from 2006. <laughs> it looks like it came out this year. And I was like, well, yeah, that's why it's awesome. That's why it's beautiful. Yeah, I was watching it with our mutual friend and uh, I sort of said, I just... Uh, I guess four or five months ago I was in Paris and I said you know this is uh, children of men supposed to look like a dystopia I was like this is what Paris looks like it's uh I mean obviously not <laughs> in yeah, some places yeah. that's a ridiculous statement but but uh, all I mean is the 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 nicest things you see in children of men in terms of city cityscapes are kind of the ugliest parts of Europe right now uh I mean, I guess the movie takes place in 2027. Yeah. was made in 2006, so... We got there a little bit ahead of schedule. <laughs> um, we're, not, we're not there yet, but it's... Uh, maybe I'm biased, because New York's the same way. I think, I think New York yeah. is just fucking ugly. Yeah, any city of significant size is going to have at least some parts that are little children of many. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh... I think I think it's Curtis White who says cities are and always have been, you know, bolsters of inequality. Like that's largely the point, uh, which sounds like maybe a, an exaggeration. But if you if you look at how cities begin, you know, industrial cities begin with industry and. Uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, and the the, alien, such as. the alienation uh, of labor. So, yeah, and you see it come out in the film, and this is skipping ahead a little bit. But when uh, when Theo's go, going to visit his cousin Nigel, who does the art 
art arc of the arts project and he's driving through the the part of london the kind of like interior part that's been walled off from all the mm-hmm. hoi polloi on the outside and you have people like walking their pet zebras and, and shit like that and there's a camel yeah and everything's yeah. like lush and green and everybody's safe and happy and mm-hmm. healthy looking um which you know is not super far from the way cities kind of are now if you look at the the sort of more gentrified parts where you know there's a whole foods and a gold's gym and all that sort of shit and then you go you know five blocks in any direction and you're back in places where there's a lot of squalor and and people struggling to get by right and the narrative is that those two things have nothing to do with each other other than the people on one side aren't lazy and they They made the right decision they made the right decisions and they yeah Um, but it's like that everywhere like yeah those yeah those two things exist in a very dependent relationship it's the the uh, where the arc of the arts is, I'm gonna fuck that up every time I try to say it. Um, is the the Battersea Power Station, which is why it has the big pig from the Pink Floyd album cover, because that was on you know used on the cover of Animals, and it kind of made me think of I was at a conference and there was a guy talking about urban spaces like green urban spaces and urban spaces that were being you know quote unquote reclaimed for these green uses. And right now in London, and unless I'm mistaken, they were trying to do something like that with, with the Battersea Power Station because it's, I guess, not operational anymore. And basically take this giant industrial space and turn it into this, like, open green space with all of these parks and, like, communal gardens or whatever. And uh, <laughs> he, he said that and during the question session. I was like, I'm assuming that that space won't be open for everyone to, to live in. He's like, oh, no, yeah, it'll be all luxury condos that only the super rich can afford. Um, so just to sort of, you know, bring that home a little bit more, that that's very much something that we're dealing with. Oh, yeah. Right you, now. You, you see that, you see that especially, like you said, in the, the state of art in yeah. Children of Man when he visits. It's, it's, it's his cousin? Is that who he is? Yeah. Yeah, and you see the Statue of David in this, you know, clearly wealthy individual's apartment. And and Zizek talks, of, you know, in his video and, or his analysis of Children of Men about this and how, you know, these, these masterpieces of art out of context of, a, of the culture to which they are masterpieces just become nothing. It's just a, a rock. Uh, yeah, and, and I love that moment in the movie where you know uh, Theo Clive Owen is talking to his cousin and says, basically, you know, how do you get up in the morning? How do, what motivates you, and how how do you deal with this? Because we see Theo's clearly an alcoholic, you know, yeah. depressed, and uh, his cousin just says, honestly, I don't think about it. <laughs> yeah, and and you see that's the only way you could live in a world like the world depicted in Children of Men and still have this preposterous notion of the importance of art, you know, he's just this really consumer, you know, he's an art consumer. Yeah, as Guernica, like in his dining room behind Mm -hmm. his table, um, for no one to see, like it's 
for him yeah. and his son who is <laughs> his chemically pill. castrated or whatever is going on. He's sitting there playing some game on what's clearly a you know, some sort of iteration of a smartphone. Popping pills the whole time. <laughs> yeah, and and yeah, the, like you're saying, that was part of the the Zizek analysis of of uh, art and saying that part of what makes the dystopia of Children of Men so effective and so sort of dark and depressing is because it has no attachment to any kind of history, like any kind of human history. So the art loses meaning, has no context. It's just kind of it's only important because the guy is saying, oh, well, this is something that should be put yeah. in my possession. It's from, like, an al- alternate history. Yeah. Um, but it holds no real value outside of the government of Britain saying, you know, doing like they always did and saying, we need to take this and keep it safe from the rest of the world. <laughs> right, the, and the uh, other art that you see in the movie is graffiti. Yeah. And maybe one important instance of that is right at the end, as uh, Theo and Key are getting in the boat. They're in this tunnel at, at like the Port Authority, getting in the boat. And there's a shot of the uh, tunnel walls, and it looks like the uh, uh, like primitive cave art. Yeah, it looks like the Chauvet caves. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe to suggest this is the beginning of culture, you know, they're they're setting out for this new, you know, for the human project. Um, anyway, the, the human I, project. Which is, we'll I just think that's an appropriate name, the, the human project. Yeah, the human project. Because um, the, you know, society they exist in is certainly not the human project. We no. see people in cages and torture. and Yeah, the, can't imagine what that would be like in real life. Um, well, that that's another, I mean, uh, that article you were quoting from, you know, sets this in the political context of, you know, Trump's America. The movie came out, like There Will Be Blood, in Bush America, mm-hmm. and, you know, Abu Ghraib was 2004, yeah. I believe. And there's there's actually one shot Guantanamo. when you see, what's that? Guantanamo. Guantanamo, all that, yeah. Um, whatever, all that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All that shit. You see a shot of military personnel uh, and prisoners stripped at one point in in children then. So I think that's that's probably a very conscious decision on Quarrel's part. So, so yeah, I think it's just a, a, a very... What do you call it? It's a Rorschach uh, sort of film. And unfortunately, each new iteration of America finds a way to see itself in this dystopia. Yeah. And uh, some of the other instances of graffiti that I think are important, because it's all throughout the movie. And if, you know, I've looked through some like YouTube amateur analyses, which is, we do amateur analysis. So, I was kind of seeing what other people had said about it, and a common theme is to sort of watch the background more so than the foreground. Yeah, and that's that's uh, another thing Zizek says is yeah. is central to Quaron is 
that's sort of how he tells his stories. Yeah, and so we get that in definitely in Children of Men, where we're following Theo around, but all of the action is sort of taking place around him and doesn't always include him. So even from the very beginning, when we have the coffee shop bombing, um, he's already out of the coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Michael Caine's character makes that great joke later of, good thing you don't take cream and sugar, because I don't know what I would have done if I lost you. Yeah. Um, and so he's outside, you know, drinking his coffee when it you see people like, there's a couple that meets in front of the shop and they like hug it right as it explodes. And when he's on the train, you see all the graffiti when the people are throwing stuff. And mm-hmm. there's a big giant billboard that says, um, failing to do fertility, fertility testing is a crime. Is a crime. Yeah. And uh, there's, and there's all kinds of, um, uh, official signage yeah. saying report suspicious activity, which is, you know, any airport you go to now is filled with that bullshit. <laughs> if you see something, say something. Right. And then right next, I think either next to the fertility sign or later on, you see graffiti that says, "Last will the last person to die turn the lights off? <laughs> Which I think is, uh, I just thought was awesome. But you see those, those, like you're saying, those ads like on the bus of like only Britain soldiers on. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very that kind of stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on, um, you know, hyper-British bullshit that you get. Um, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be fine. We have our, our tea and crumpets and all that. Um, but, yeah, you see in what what's happening around Theo, just how sort of desperate everything is. Like, when he's walking through that crowd of the, uh, the repenters, they're all wearing, which is kind of weird because they're all wearing like yellow rain jackets, mm-hmm. and now we have the yellow vest movement, and that's probably like there's probably nothing there, but it just kind of made me think of that. Yeah. Um, and they're all you know saying this is God's punishment, which you would think would definitely be something that would happen if this were to occur in real life. You know, several there's several moments where you you see you know marching through the streets, you you see the the religious people as a repent, repent, somebody screaming about God. And you see all these sort of like militant uh, groups. You don't really know what they're doing. They have guns. They're marching in in crowds. And then there's one shot later in the film where there's just a flock of sheep running <laughs> through the street in the same sort of formation you've seen these yeah. other groups. And it's, <laughs> it's just like I mean, you're so used to this crazy world, you don't think much of it, you know, when you when you're watching it. But yeah, flock of sheep. It might as well be. A group of soldiers running down the street. Right, right. We right. Same sort of uh, motivation. We have no idea what's happening. <laughs> right. Um, but something else I wanted to to uh, bring up was from Mark Fisher's book. You know, Mark Fisher, the cultural critic, rest in peace. Um, from his book Capitalist Realism, and he opens that book by talking about children and men, and he says something that's sort of related to what Zizek is talking about, and he cites Zizek. Um, but the way he states it, I think, is, I don't know, helped me understand a little bit more. And he writes, The catastrophe of children and men is neither waiting down the road, nor has it already happened. Rather, it is being lived through. There is no punctual moment of disaster. The world doesn't end with a bang. It winks out, unravels, gradually falls apart. What caused the catastrophe to, to occur, who knows? Its cause lies long in the past, so absolutely detached from the present, as to seem like the caprice of a malign being. A negative miracle, a malediction which no penitence can ameliorate. 
Such a blight can only be eased by an intervention that can no more be anticipated than was the onset of the curse in the first place. Action is pointless. Only senseless hope makes sense. Superstition and religion, the first resorts of the helpless, proliferate. And that part, I think, is, is, is useful in thinking about this in a number of ways. And he makes a, a comparison earlier on between that kind of disaster in the movie, the fertility crisis, and also things like um, living in the, the post-9-11 surveillance state, which is... It's definitely there. Yeah, like yeah. You're, you're living in this catastrophe that's ha- has no beginning or end. You're just living in the middle of it. Um, which which is, yeah, speaks to sort of a, a basic falsity of, of other dystopian films mm-hmm. where it is, everyone's in, you know, in other, in other dystopian films, everyone's in that special moment, you know, yeah. but that's not how it is. Like, it's like this guy saying, it's like, that's no one's experience of this or, or maybe just a handful of people if it actually, you know, went down that way. Most people's experience of a declining culture is just some random in-between period of, of decline, not utter annihilation. Yeah, you know? it's not like a deep impact or something like right. that. Right. Um, so he continues, he says, but what of the catastrophe itself? It is evident that the theme of sterility must be read metaphorically as the displacement of another kind of anxiety. I want to argue this anxiety cries out to be read in cultural terms, and the question the film poses is, how long can a culture persist without the new? What happens if the young are no longer capable of producing surprises? And this idea of producing the new, I think, can be really useful because, um, you know, Zizek makes this point about the the dystopia of the film comes from this lack of history and this inability to find this sort of connection to anything because it's all pointless because you know humanity will go no further we i think theo says at one point we have 50 years and then it's all over and then the you know the last person will die um so within that frame you can see how creation and imagination and all that good stuff would kind of die um, kind of fall away because there's no future to dream toward, right? What what reason right. do you have for any form of and no, and no past to inform the dreams for the future? Yeah. yeah. So what's the point in creating anything if humanity is not going to be around to sort of experience it? Um, if there's no sort of speculation about anything, it's like no, the world will end, everyone will die, and and the movie kind of comes back around at the end and has this hopeful. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of a lot of people when they first see this movie get sort of hung up on the sterility. You know, they, they sort of literalize that, and and any any you know thoughtful analysis you, you read of this movie talks of the um, you know infertility as a sort of spiritual like spiritual cultural crisis. There is a lack of meaning. There's no thing. Things have been utterly decontextualized, dehistoricized. No, uh, you know, meaning is. I think McConaughey says this in the True Detective. Meaning is historical, uh, <laughs> but I think that's true. I think that's incidental that that character <laughs> says that. But I didn't want to like say that, and be like, he stole that from True Detective. Uh, 
Yeah. So so meaning is historical. So uh, if we if if like these critics are saying, we have been, uh, you know, humanity comes to exist in this decontextualized state. There's no meaning. There's no there's no point in your life. You're just this growing and then decaying animal, and there's no use creating art or a human being or anything. Yeah. Um, so so then the question becomes for the film, what what are the agents of this decontextualizing of this decontextualization what has disrupted our notions of history and of the future or tomorrow as the ship is called at the end Um, and I think I think a lot of what the film shows is this you know Orwellian breach of privacy through uh, technology um it's going to open up a whole can of worms but uh, one, one book I found very uh, I, just to have on the tip of my brain in watching uh, Children of Men is Herbert Marcuse's uh, Eros and Civilization uh, particularly Itumama uh, Tembien I think is what made me think of this book but uh, Children of Men obviously too because those movies are so closely related um, but he has a nice thought Marcuse does on page four about uh, sort of modern science and technology. He says, Concentration camps, mass exterminations, world wars, and atom bombs are no relapse into barbarism, but the unrepressed implementation of the achievements of modern science, technology, and domination. And so I think, end quote, I think you see you see a I think you can read a, a a definite relationship between the subjugation depicted in, in uh, children of men with the high capacity of technology and industry that this civilization has in you know 2027 which is just a very mild exaggeration of what we have in 2019 and what we had in 2006 yeah and some people even uh, mentioned that the technology kind of stopped it sort of implied that once the fertility stoppage happened that technology just sort of stopped innovating stopped advancing and so you have a few things like the screens are all sort of weird almost like holographic Mm -hmm. things and there's like in the car you have the numbers come up on the windshield and Mm -hmm. stuff like that Um, but for the most part it's really this is not the high tech future of most science fiction or dystopian movies it's all very kind of grimy Um, it's all very believable yeah yeah one place I forget where it might have been that BFI article called it a uh, like kitchen sink future or something (laughs) Um, so yeah, it's all, it it is all very believable. Um, now I would say probably maybe more so than back then, even though the technology is really not far advanced beyond that point, 2006. Yeah. It's like the screens are just like nicer iPads. (laughs) Yes. It's it's not a totally new invention. It's just a a future development in pre-existing. Yeah technologies 
Um, but you were saying, you know, what what is there? What what meaning do we have? And that's the one of the big questions of the film is like, where do we find meaning? Like, what what's the point of doing any of this? And for Theo, he can't find a point. Right, and he's drinking all the time, and he's kind of he's just kind of over the whole <laughs> slowly creeping apocalypse thing. Um, this kind of slow violence of infertility creeping into everybody. Um, and what kind of strikes me about the movie is that even in this lack of meaning, the one thing that people can still fully justify is a sort of military subjugation of people. Um, you know, we, we mentioned putting the, the Fugees, as they're called, the refugees, in cages. Um, the fact that there's military personnel or paramilitary personnel everywhere in the film at sort of every corner um, and something that uh, pops up a lot that's usually usually traced back to either Frederick Jameson or to Zizek is this quote of it's easier to imagine the death of the world than it is the death of capitalism or the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism um, so even though the world the way it's being portrayed by you know, the British government of the film is that the world is basically ended and England is the one shining hope. Mm -hmm. um, and so what's still around is this hyper-surveillance state that's very much concerned with its the integrity of its borders and its, um, its sort of homogeneity of only the British people and no one new can come in, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it kind of makes you think, well, if there's no meaning to anything they're doing, then why are they still what, what order, doing this? What order are they protecting? Yeah, like what exactly, you know, like you're saying, what exactly are you protecting? What exactly is your mission here? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting how immigration is, I won't say at the forefront, because it's, I mean, it's kind of in the background, but it's maybe the most prominent and consistent issue pointed to by the film um, even the fishes right which are uh, they are kind of introduced as a sort of heroic group and then they quickly you know are shown to have their own sort of cracks and fissures um, they they exist as a refugee rights advocacy group like militant mm -hmm. advocates for for refugee rights um, so it, it in 2006, when he's writing this, um, you know, immigration was still very much an issue kind of all around the world, but not nearly as much so as it is today. And that's why, you know, you have, you can't watch the movie without thinking about, you know, ICE detention centers and, you know, putting Latin American refugees in cages and these prisons that are built specifically for them and separating families. And, and you, you also, uh, again... To take it back to the film's release date, political context, um, I think you and I both have read uh, Dave Eggers' Zaytun, yeah. and uh, there's some some very memorable images of humans in cages uh, from that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so and and that book's about Katrina, of course. Um, and the first thing that they do. Well, it's implied in the book, and I, I'm just taking this to be true because I don't see why it wouldn't be. Um, the fir basically, the first thing that the military or the government did after Katrina was construct a prison mm -hmm. in which to house people that they found to be, you know, suspicious or whatever, maybe. Yeah, and mostly by, like, privately contracted mm -hmm. security uh, 
companies, not even like actual police yeah, officers. Blackwater and, and people like that. Um, and so, and what makes Zaytun so effective is it shows you what our kind of surveillance state, this sort of hyper paranoid, hyper concerned with, you know, integrity of borders state does when confronted with any kind of catastrophe. So even on a normal day, it does some horrendous things. So what happens when um, something like a major hurricane hits, right? So here we see with this fertility crisis and all these other, you know, wars or conflicts or whatever may be going on around the world, just how um, sort of far toward pure security state, pure sort of, it's not totalitarian in the sense of having like a dictator, but it's definitely a very strong central government that's just controlling everything, um, wrangling people up, putting them in cages, sending them to these prisons that they've constructed. Um, or not even that they've constructed, just towns that they've turned into prisons. Yeah, it was just sort of thrown up, yeah. And so, and it's interesting to think about <coughs> a left-wing reaction to this movie versus a right-wing reaction. If we're just going to break it down and look at it from these two poles. Um, because it's very easy to look at this from my perspective and say, like, how fucking awful the way that they're treating these immigrants and the fact that they're, you know, impinging these people's human rights and so on and so forth. And so on and so forth, as Zizek would say. And so you have that. But then on the right, and this came up, you were talking about, there's a there's a video on YouTube of Francis Fukuyama talking about this, the Slate, this movie. Mm-hmm. And you're saying you're looking at the comments and there were a lot of people who were like, well, you know, actually, the refugees did kind of lead to the destruction of of that town. <laughs> right. They they see this as a commentary on the destructiveness of immigration, and as if Quran is saying, uh, "This is what happens to a city when its borders are breached with illegal immigrants." Like, yeah. how you can watch that movie and think that. I don't know, but well, it's sweet. there were several comments under the video that suggested that. We you know the internet's a fucking hell portal, so it's yeah, to be expected. Bathroom stall wall. But it's hard to remember, or it's it's not hard to remember. <coughs> it's it's hard to forget that. So we live in a world, especially in the United States, where uh, immigration has always been a big part of our our bag, right? That's kind of what we're founded on. They're, they're, we have a whole statue about it's it. It's literally <laughs> how we were founded. Yeah. yeah. And so we live in this world where immigration has always just kind of been a part of how things function. We, every day, if you go outside and go out into public, you probably interact with someone who is either an immigrant or has some sort of connection to immigration, whatever it may be. Um, but in the past, you know, two years, three years, however long it is, um, people have become hyper aware of it and also hyper against it and also hyper afraid of it in a lot of different ways uh, to the point where we have people making these sensationalized videos where they're like going to a, a, a majority like immigrant usually majority Muslim part of a city in like Sweden and say like this is a no go zone you're not allowed the Sharia law is here um, and it's fucking ridiculous because it's the way it's always been. I mean, nobody's going to go to Little Italy and be like, these are all papists. Don't come here unless you want to take communion. Um, but this is kind of how the world has changed, and there are plenty of people that 
will now look at this movie and say like well told you told you not to let him in right right and and that shows that as a filmmaker you know uh, you can't assume you can't assume an ideology of your audience you know or you I guess you can but um, you can't assume that they're just gonna be able to take all the sort of fact the, the the other factors of the film into their into their reading of the film yeah. um, the fact that the hero you know is a political you know a former political activist being sort of rejuvenated back into activism um, to protect an immigrant and and the life uh, you know the, obviously her her baby um so I mean, just just that right there shows you that the film is, you know, not even close to, um, you know, siding with the gov- the British government yeah. in this film. <laughs> like, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like a lot of these um, hyper anti-immigration right wing fascists. It's kind of their worst nightmare because they're always a, a hooting and a hollering about birth rates and how you know the Middle East and Africa are going to outbreed white people and all that kind of shit. And now you have. And children of men, the the first baby in eighteen years, born to this uh, this black refugee. Did you did you catch uh, the fate of Africa in Children of Men? It's like on a so. newspaper clipping in the background. No, there, there's so much going on with like new shots of newspapers and yeah. stuff that I, I missed a lot. It's of it. uh, nu- they were nuked. Oh, okay. I'm sure that that was warranted. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, got to nuke something. It's like Africa s- struggles from the devastation of nuclear war, and so that's the, that's the only mention I think of of what's going on in Africa. In, in well, Africa, yeah, in the United States, it's uh, the siege of Seattle is mentioned at one point, and mm-hmm. then you see like video clips of stuff, and then uh, at one point Theo asks Julian if her parents were were in New York City when it happened. They don't say what it was, um, hmm. but that's usually. That I think I've mentioned this before, but I like that nerdy world building stuff. Like I, I want to know the history of it and exactly what happened. But right. I understand why, from a storytelling standpoint, it's much better to be sort of ambiguous about it. Right. Um, one thing I think we should talk about is the prevalence of animals in the film. Yeah. Um, in the opening shot. There's a, a woman holding a dog when they're standing in the coffee shop watching TV, and then you see dogs out on the street. You go to Michael Caine's character's house, and, and yeah. there's a cat and a dog, and there's just cats and dogs throughout this whole damn Mar- movie. Marika, right, the Romanian lady that helps him at the end, has the dog that she's carrying around mm-hmm. the whole time. Yeah, and, and so it's clearly, I mean, what's the lifespan of a dog? You know, fifteen years or something. For some of them, but now that's relevant, right? If human, if humanity is not going to be around anymore, well, it's also relevant in the sense that clearly animals are not having any trouble <laughs> yeah. uh, reproducing, and so it's not you can sort of immediately rule out some sort of uh, environmental uh, poison that is like biologically causing infertility. Um, yeah, because. No, it's a human. Problem. It's it's a human culture problem, right? And you have the uh, the scene when Q 
key reveals to Theo that she's pregnant, and it's in the barn. Well, he says something like, you want to talk about cows and titties? <laughs> yeah, she, cause she's talking about, like, uh, I mean, they cut they cut off their titties so it'll so because only four fit into the machine. Why can't they make a machine with eight titties or whatever? Uh, which is a good point. Like why yeah. why can't you do that? Um, and you know the fact that it's in a barn has this sort of biblical imagery. And and when she tells him, his reaction is Jesus Christ. <laughs> There's a lot of like weird sort of biblical oh, stuff yeah, going on. Yeah, and when when she gives birth, it's a sort of. The way they're dressed has this sort of three wise men vibe. Yeah, and they have the room at the end. And, right, right. And we, I mean, that's not how it works I, in I the think, Bible. But. I think the there's uh, very much... The, the Christian allegory is, is a lot heavier in the novel from what I've read. Yeah, and that has to do with, um, again, from what I've read since I haven't read the book, P.D. James being um, a devout Anglican and kind of conservative. And in the in the book, people you have pets instead of children, so they like are very attached to their pets, and they do all sorts of weird stuff that white people do now, um, but just it takes on even more meaning um, right. in a world without children. Um, but she's telling him, and she's standing in the pen with like the calves, like the the, mm-hmm. the young cows, uh, and it's this weird thing of like hyper motherhood, sort of this animal non human. Um, motherhood happening around and she's sort of among that right um and also like a weird kind of uh, makes you think of like animal husbandry and like the kind of like uh, very visceral stuff that happens on a farm of like inseminating cows or right. whatever maybe right. um so i thought that was that it happened there and in that kind of way I thought was really good because it's kind of weird when you see it at first of like she's just standing naked among these cows Mm -hmm. it's a very kind of weird image but then you think about all that other stuff utterly utterly ridiculous (laughs) Um, yeah it's very moving ooh (laughs) podcast is (laughs) cancelled last episode Um, but yeah and you have that um in contrast with all these other really stark images um, and to go back to these cages there's something else I wanted to mention because there's one scene and I thought this was so it's kind of just like a passing thing but I, I just thought it was great it's when he's going to meet um, Michael Caine's character who's I forgot his name Jasper whose name I forgot somehow yeah. um, and he's at the train station and he's getting off the train and he's walking p- past the cages with the, the Fugees and there's one where there's like a little old like this white lady standing in the corner next to this tall kind of very sort of dark skinned black guy and she's speaking in German and I didn't really my Germans were rusty and so I I didn't catch all of it but at the end she you can see she's very kind of indignant and she points at him and and she's like Schwarze or whatever and and she's just saying like I didn't translate it but I got this kind of feeling that she's being like you know, I'm one of the good immigrants. Like, I come from one of the countries that is okay, and you're putting me here in this cage with these other people. Right. Um, And I just thought that was so great, because right now when we think of, or not great, but great in a very dark way, because now when we think of refugees being, uh, you know, put in cages or rounded up, we think of uh, primarily brown people from the Mm -hmm. global south, right? Right. Um, But there may come a time in the not-so-distant future where that's not as much the case anymore. Sure. Um, and even now in, uh, you know, Brexit England, the people that they were concerned about were, you know, Romanians and Bulgarians, uh, you know, people that 
you would think your garden variety um, white supremacist would be okay with, but you know, not so much. It's kind of how deep their their nationalist ties go. I think um, I think Michael Caine's character Jasper is. Uh, I heard that there was a big change from that. I think Zizek talks about the change from the novel to the film. Probably my favorite scene in the film is Jasper's death. Yes. Um, I I don't I, I sort of disagreed with Zizek's reading of of his character as kind of a joke, you know, as as showing the ineffectuality of of the old sort of hippie liberal. Uh, I, I didn't get that at all. I got, especially through that death scene, uh, the importance of humor, of maintaining humor, and like humor as a weapon, um, as a sort of as security for humanity, uh, you know, a sort of a hallmark of humanity. And it made me think about how it seems like there's two very different types of political humor um, and there, there's political humor and, and we, uh, Jasper the character Jasper we learn is a political cartoonist or was a political cartoonist so some sort of satirist and uh, yeah the two types of political humor are sort of one of them is acts as sort of a palliative you know I think of like um like late night talk show hosts getting political. Think about Colbert sort of fetishizing Trump on CBS, you know. And, and yeah, he's criticizing him, but he's also just sort of turning it into a joke. Um, and so it makes it more digestible. And then there's another type of political humor uh, that I think you could also see in Colbert's White House Correspondence Dinner in 2006, uh, where he, you know, it's just one of the most ballsy things I've ever seen, where he's criticizing George Bush to his face, um, pretty, pretty seriously, um, and so, so there, so there is a sort of political, or a sort of humor that is subversive, and is emphatically anti-authoritarian and I think you see that through the character Jasper um, and I don't think you see I think that's, that's a very rare sort of uh, person to find uh, nowadays yeah um, I, I, as much as I admire sort of the perspective of most of what say you know John Oliver says there's, you know, it's on HBO, and it's and it's everything is turned into a joke because it has to be. It's like categorically incapable of being truly subversive. Uh, and John Stewart, same way. Colbert, you know, when you work for Viacom, it's it's hard to escape that. But there's something dignified maybe counterintuitively to the way he keeps insisting that this guy shooting him this policeman <laughs> pull his finger yeah you know uh, it's it's my favorite scene yeah and it, 
And I think the only time he, he kind of almost breaks is like when they, they shoot him initially in the hand. And he's like, fuck you, and like throws his joint at him. <laughs> um, and then, he, you know, he keeps on with, with pull my finger. And throughout, that's kind of his thing, is he's not, I mean, you could call it comic relief, but I think it's more of like... It's comical. Yeah, it, it's kind of yeah. comedy and, and sort of joy and happiness as a, as a radical act of... It's the, yeah, it's showing the role of comedy in this dystopia. Yeah. Because it's kind of the most radical thing you can do as the world's ending is to laugh at it, make a fart joke, right? That's it's bad. What can you do that's that's more against the grain? Yeah. It makes me think. It reminds me of the scene in. Uh, I mean, not, not that these are on the same intellectual level, but the scene in Fight Club where the guy who owns the basement where they host Fight Club, Lou, I think his name is comes down and starts beating the shit out of Tyler Durden and he's he just keeps insisting you know like he's gonna beat some sense into him and he just keeps insisting that he still doesn't get it and he knows that if he says he gets it he'll stop getting beaten but he just says ah, I lost it takes another <laughs> punch um, yeah so there's something there's something like I said despite the fact that it's uh, he's asking him to pull his finger there's something very dignified about his death uh, and, and the character in general, uh, and I don't think it's a like Zizek says a critique of the ineffectuality of the the old hippie. Yeah, or like left. he's all he does is smoke weed to numb himself. Right, I think there's more to it than that. <clears throat> yeah, I think uh, I would definitely agree with that. And that also has one of those little world building things that I thought was so great of a uh, quietus, which is the suicide kit that he has mm-hmm. that kind of looks like a, a weird board game from the 90s Quietus it's in the blue box with like the big white letters yeah and you always see it like advert- Quietus is I guess some sort of corporation yeah it's like the official of... state sponsored suicide kit somehow I missed that like I yeah. saw I remember seeing the word Quietus all over but I didn't I just missed what it was for yeah he uses it to uh, to kind of euthanize his wife at the end before the, the fishes show up um, and he sees that Theo earlier sees that commercial and it's funny cause it's like he has his alarm and the TV comes on and it says it's 7.59 a.m. or whatever and the first thing he sees when he wakes up is a commercial for a suicide kit <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's it's completely painless it works 100% of the time it's like well yeah no shit if there's one thing it's humanity's like they're, they're, really good at it's killing humanity well yeah they're trying to control population so you, you're sort of doing everyone a favor yeah. <clears throat> hmm. So something else to to bring it back to this theme of <laughs> it's a good transition. Yeah, to, something else. So, something else I was wondering about, uh, and this is tying back a little bit to what I was talking about with um, or kind of rambling about with the the Fujis in the cages and the the separation and the the dedication to making sure that you know London is this hermetically sealed island. <clears throat> this is coming from. Isabel Laurie's State of Insecurity, Government of the Precarious, where she lays out um, in detail her ideas of, of what the precarious is and precarity. Um, Judith Butler talks about it in Frames of War and also in Precarious Life, which is the book that precedes that. And she just said something in this, this introduction that I thought was uh, relevant. So she writes, the socio-ontological level is constructed as a threat against which a political community must be protected, immunized, 
Legitimizing the protection of some generally requires striating the precarity of those marked as other. This especially distinguishes liberal governmentality to a high degree. The threatening, precari the threatening precariousness can be turned into the construction of dangerous others position respectively within and outside the political and social community as abnormal and alien. And so in response to this idea, she talks about uh, one of our sort of means of combating this can be um, coming together sort of as a community, sort of that, that great white well of if we could only come together as a community. So she writes, in light of the existential precariousness of every living being, understanding social rela relationality as primary does not mean starting from something that is equally common to all. Recognizing social re relationality can only be the beginning of an entry into processes of becoming common, involving discussions of possible common interest in the differentness of the precarious in order to invent with others new forms of organizing and new orders that break with the existing forms of governing in a refusal of obedience. Um, so a refusal of obedience, the, the talking about Jasper kind of made me think of this, of his humor as a refusal of obedience. But it kind of made me think of, the toward the end, a kind of famous scene now as far as this film is concerned. And it's near the end of the long tracking shot when Theo's trying to find Key and the baby and he finds them and they get out of the, they're getting out of the building. And the soldiers are coming up the steps and they stop when they see the baby. It's maybe the most powerful moment in the movie yeah yeah and so everyone stops the fighting and just sort of stares and just looks at the baby and there people even like cross themselves and mm -hmm. um so up until this point in the film we're sort of made to see that it's this very striated society um everyone that lives in london or in england in general in is quote-unquote safe is living in a very precarious existence right they they could die in a terrorist attack. The government has basically full control over everything they do. Their best way out seems to be to kill themselves with this state-sponsored suicide kit. Um, so what what brings them together? Well, nothing really until they see this baby. And it's kind of that's why the end of the movie is hopeful. But I thought this was kind of it's really powerful, but it was kind of depressing at the same point. I think it's interesting that the word relational mm -hmm. recurs. Um, you know, in what you read, but in, in a lot of things you read about uh, environmentalism and, um, and and cultural critique in general, and what you see, I think maybe one of the biggest issues in just contemporary cultural discourse, um, and, and I think you see it not to not to bring this topic back up the Zizek Peterson debate <laughs> may be sort of representative of what I'm talking about um, the issue is that of uh, individualism and collectivism obviously this is a not just particular to this moment in history but it feels essential to kind of competing ideologies and you have this sort of <laughs> Petersonian, uh, you know, God, sort of God help us, Peterson followers uh, who have this sort of hyper individualized understanding, like, oh, the key to happiness is to clean your fucking room or whatever he says. Yeah, stand up uh, straight, right? And Google then, lobster hierarchies, and then you know, the sort of left wing. Um, 
collective political action is the cure for all ills. Um, and there's no nuance in these in either one of these understandings or, or the, the idea that these um, both of these things are necessary at the same time and that they are not exclusive competing ideologies. Um, that collect you know collective political action needs to be carried out by individuals with a sense of purpose and meaning. And so I think, to some degree, both sides of that argument are true. I do think the individual is uh, sort of infringed upon in contemporary society and not allowed to be who they are when all you can do is try to work 40 hours a week to fucking survive on minimum wage or whatever it is. Uh, but, but at the same time, I think like political action is necessary. Collective action is necessary, but it needs to be carried out by people who know who the fuck they are. Um, you know what I'm saying? Not by some sheep running through the street. Uh, and so I don't see those ideologies as competing. I see them as sort of uh, integral. Um, and that's, for some for some reason, people think they have to pick a side yeah. and one will win out um, and, and that they are mutually exclusive. Yeah. And the word she uses is, is relationality, and I think a lot of major major issues facing you know humanity come down to a lack of ability to consider re- relationality as a thing. Like you're saying, you you tr- construct these dichotomies. You say, you know, I'm I'm a Republican, therefore here is my list of beliefs <laughs> um, issued to me, right? Um, when really what would be way more helpful is to examine your relationality to others, to the government, to the world, right? Right. It's Okay, so if the point of life is to sort of individuate, you right. know, to become an individual, to self-actualize, that, can, that, uh, that is um, so literally self-contained. It's like, what's the point? That, yeah. that, that has to be the first step because, okay, what does an individual do? Where does an individual get meaning? Through its relations <laughs> yeah, from with others, others right? you know what I'm saying. So, so that's why I say these are not mutually exclusive. These are, these are both, um, both sides of this are um, justified. I think, but they have to be. Uh, I just think we have to be able to think with with a little more nuance about both of them. Yeah, and you're talking about individual individualism versus collectivism. Not like Republicans and Democrats. Because you feel like, I think both sides are justified. Oh, yeah, yeah, Good people on both sides. The sides I'm referring to are hyper-individualism and hyper-collectivism. Yeah. No, uh, Republicans are fucking crazy. And (laughs) centrist Democrats now, too. Um, Oh, yeah. Or, well, you know, always. Uh, Democrats tell the right lies. That's how I say it. Sometimes. (laughs) Depending. Depending on what you're talking about. Depending on the Democrat. If you're talking about Israel, not so much. Um, but earlier in this this chapter, just to, in it, it gets at what you're talking about. Lori writes, individualization means isolation, and this kind of separation is primarily a matter of constituting oneself by way of imaginary relationships, constituting one's own inner being, and only secondly, and to a lesser extent, by way of connections with others. Mm-hmm. And talking about these imaginary relationships, I think of like Benedict Anderson, imaginary communities of the nation. Right? I'm a, I'm an American. That's a core part of who I am. Right, but 
why is that a core part of like right. what, first what of all what is yeah, and what is America you know the United States of America it's that's that's a theoretical conception to begin with and then to 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 stack another theoretical conception on top of that theoretical conception of, of uh, uh, an American in America or then you know a whatever it's you want America a, with three K's <laughs> a Republican Tennessean American it's like when you would in classes or what, wherever it would be like if you'd have to do any sort of group icebreaker sometimes they'd ask you to give us three words that describe you or whatever and most people would say things like American Christian uh sports fan you know whatever yeah. all, and and these are all kind of self-chosen in some cases imaginary connections with these larger things that you use in order to give your life meaning right um you know I identify like these people that are sort of hyper patriotic it's because without that they probably fall to pieces right they probably lose their damn mind if they don't have this larger country to identify with I saw a guy today wearing a shirt that looked like it was from the early 2000s and it had a an American flag on the back and all it said was safety comes first <laughs> There's, and it the, made me think of Nietzsche and uh, live, live dangerously but, you know okay, yeah, um, safety absolutely. comes first I was like what? You, and just think about how is that supposed to be badass? well that word <laughs> that word is holding a lot of water and that like what does that mean safety comes first that's not like safety first wear a helmet that's and like can you imagine a worse sort of country motto like a national motto what a cowardly motto that is safety comes first it sounds like you know uh, that would be the theme of like an instructional video for kindergartners <laughs> yeah well also you know the the added level that it it's implying that well the shirt's not saying this, I'm saying this. It's implying that our safety requires the uh, lack of safety for lots of other people. <laughs> right. Um, many of them right on our border. Um, and that's like a shirt somebody, like a volunteer border patrolman would wear as he like tears ass on a four-wheeler through the desert of Arizona with a fucking Bushmaster on his back. This is just a, a footnote, but I, I wish I had seen this before... Last week's episode, I saw a minivan and, uh, this week, uh, and on the little gas door, you know, where you, where you put, your, put the gas pump, they had a Jesus is Lord bumper sticker, but it was right on the, uh, on the gas tank, and I thought that was a perfect embodiment of the themes of uh, There Will Be Blood. The marriage of religion and oil. <laughs> um, that, that really is kind of a perfect symbol of it. Um, anyway, not to derail. I just I was going to forget it, that um, Jesus. People who aren't from from where from our town. Jesus is Lord is the uh, the membership sticker of the giant mega church in town. So you see a lot of those. Mm-hmm. The marketing strategy of a mega church in town. Yeah. Abundant life. Yeah, but the reason we're talking about all this, this sort of, um, well, the reason I was rambling about border patrolmen and and all this sort of crazy 
you know, our safety implies the violence on a lot of other people is because it's, it's definitely a theme of the movie. And even more importantly, um, it's, it's kind of what makes the movie stick out as being something that is completely possible in our, our current time. Um, because the attitude you see of like the British cops and, and soldiers toward the refugees and uh, toward the general citizenry are, are things that we see now, right? You have, when they're on the bus, Theo convinces the guard to leave Key alone by saying that she's, she's pissed all over the floor mm-hmm. and really it's her, her water's broken. And the guy just immediately is just like accepts it and is like, you people disgust me. Right, and that's an attitude that is very much alive and well. Mm-hmm. Um, always has been, but is now, um, you know, gained more of a, a bullhorn. Turned up to 11 now. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it is related to, to what's going on in the film. Um, and it's, it's kind of, I didn't expect to, I don't know, I didn't expect to watch this film and have it sort of hit home so much. Because I hadn't seen it in a few years, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, it's been a while since I. Since yeah, I'd probably seen like two thousand ten or something is the last yeah. time I saw this movie. Um, which Jesus, like, which makes me think of how old I'm getting. That's like, that was nine years. Yeah, that's ago. nine years ago. <laughs> there are plenty of kids that just weren't born yet. Yeah. Um, and so, watching it now, it just kind of was. It just struck me of like, this is stuff that I would have been cognizant of when I saw it back then, but now it's like this is like a documentary this is crazy yeah yeah um, another uh, another thought from Marcusa that uh, I thought was relevant to to watching this movie is uh, is this passage from his I think it's I think it's chapter one the origin of the repressed individual and Marcusa writes the death instinct is destructiveness not for its own sake, but for the relief of tension. The descent toward death is an unconscious flight from pain and want. It is an expression of the eternal struggle against suffering and repression, and the death instinct itself seems to be affected by the historical changes which affect this struggle. End quote. So I think what can sort of go under the radar watching Children of Men is this... um, the pain in just everyday life in this world that Quran creates, which again, is just a, you know, an exaggeration of of our own world. Um, And we're sort of seeing people on the forefront of this sort of existential struggle, but you just sort of imagine just some random person who, you know, grew up wanting to, have a child or, or whatever and um, and obviously the movie's working on a metaphorical level but um, there, there just seems to be a lot of and you see it with Theo at the beginning because he's not at the beginning involved in this you know existential struggle but there's still just a ton of pain and hurt and and it there's a sort of like you get the feeling of this complacency in the general public. Like you said, he's just done with it. Yeah. Um, and and you sort of have to ask yourself what it kind of it's like chicken or the egg. 
<laughs> for the for the infertility. Did it did it make them feel that way, or were they already like right? That? And it caused this, yeah. Um, anyway, that that passage just made me sort of think about that and think about just it's weird a very forgettable scene is the with uh, Theo goes to work and like tells his boss he's taking the day off <laughs> yeah. or whatever um, but you know a, a lot of the other people didn't take the day off you know and they're just sitting there doing this routine work as the world for what like for the retirement like what did yeah. <laughs> what did they yeah. was, was, was there another movie we talked about where you were like you were talking about how you, would you still go to work uh, it might have been there? first reform maybe like Michael was working at Home Depot and I was saying like well why would oh, you yeah, keep yeah, working yeah, like if the world's ending why would you give a shit about a, right. a seasonal job at Home Depot maybe, right. I, don't, I don't know if that was exactly but yeah that, that's just sort of generally my attitude toward work is if there are these more important things to worry about then why do I need to sit at a desk and cold call people for eight hours or you know whatever your job may be yeah um and yeah it sort of shows how despondent that whole society is right and it's very much I mean you see this every day of people you know being tied to a desk or to whatever they do for eight hours a day and they get a week of vacation a year if that and maybe they get a Christmas bonus maybe they get like a pat on the back and a good job um it, it, uh, there's a great passage in, in The Spirit of Disobedience where Curtis White talks about academia and he, he calls, you know, a tenured professor the last great job. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it's the last real job or something like that. But uh, he talks about how when the general public hears about, you know, a professor having tenure and getting time off to, you know, having his own research time or her own uh, sabbatical to write a book. Um, The reaction that has been manufactured in people is they shouldn't have that. It's their reaction is uh, is not I should get that too. It's they shouldn't have that because what is normal and standard is that no one has freedom Everyone has to be subject and chained to their desk, um, and so and so. What the, an interesting question to me is: What engenders that reaction, that negative reaction, as a as opposed to that desiring reaction? I, I that that is desirable. I want that. How can we make that possible for everyone? Rather than yeah, they shouldn't have that. It's a kind of precariousness that so many people around the world experience in in the United States it looks like a person who is living paycheck to paycheck and they're one really you know they're one car accident or illness or broken bone away from you know bankruptcy and possibly homelessness and um, thinking about precariousness as a form of control right of you you have to show up for work every day and you have to do good work or else your life is right. fucked. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so much of the rhetoric of, of employment is about security, and so I get, you can sort of see in this tumultuous time that the film depicts. You know, ninety five percent of the world is going to be like, I got, I'm going to be early for work. You know, to <laughs> to maintain this little security I have, as if, uh, you know, as if the job market is not susceptible to 
the decline of civilization. Yeah, but then going back to what you're saying of um, not not looking at it and saying, well, why don't I have time off? Why don't I get a sabbatical? Whatever it may be. Um, that makes a lot of sense in the world we live in because there's a lot of, you know, exterior things going on, a lot of things you have to worry about. You can't just, you know, you can't lead a one-person revolution, right? It would take some sort of mass action. But in the world of the film, it kind of makes me think of in a world in which the human race is pretty much everyone thinks going to end, I guess that their security, what little level of security they have living on the island of Great Britain is important enough that they're willing to continue that sort of farce of a system and not just rise up and say, fuck this, we're not, why, why am I going to come into work and type on a computer for eight hours when the work, I have, you know, 20 years left to live and then everything's going to be over. Mm-hmm. Um, when of course, in reality, like that's the truth, just because you reproduce. Yeah, it doesn't really, doesn't, you know, it doesn't change anything, but, but that's when you're getting into this, like, like Zizek talks about this spiritual crisis and the the dehistoricized you know this utter lack of history um and that's sort of the 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 project of humanity is we have we we tell ourselves these stories about the past we tell ourselves stories about the present we tell ourselves stories about where we're going in the future and when when that gets lost uh i can't remember who it is says the the depressed person is the ultimate realist Uh, you know and so and that's what it is we're we're left with this bare sort of biological scientific truth which is that you're an animal who who grows and then dies and is never heard from again Um, but that's not I mean the, the whole of human culture exists as a rebellion against that I don't even want to call it truth but that understanding of of human existence and so when you when culture declines that under uh, that understanding comes to the forefront because that's just sort of the the bare facts um, the darkness hasn't changed right right, right. Um, and kind of I really appreciated that uh, Theo is a bureaucrat right he he has an office job he's not doing anything important like you know, um, not to, to make Interstellar sound justified, but he's not a farmer. He's not doing something that's directly important to the the uh, sort of well-being of the surviving mm-hmm. surviving you know massive it's, humanity. It's implied he used to be a political activist. Yeah, and now he's gone in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. He's just sort of a, a you know a cog in this greater machine. That um, as I'm basically what I'm trying to say is like, why is the British government still thing like why is it still functioning Mm -hmm. what purpose is it serving like it's that idea of quote-unquote safety right of we have to maintain the status quo but the status quo also looks like it does now where you have a striated society you have um they're not really protecting you from anything really they're just bombing the shit out of people who have no recourse to that's just I don't know. It bums me out that there's still bureaucrats and the world's ending, right? Right, right. Yeah, and there's, you know, and there's still corporation. You know, the coffee shop is still serving coffee at (laughs) the beginning of the movie. And you have to suspect that those things are still in operation because 
they're still making money for the people at the top who want to enclose themselves in their with their art and their you know and their wine and their ivory towers to protect themselves from from the reality uh, outside it, it really reminds me of, of another Dave Eggers book The Circle and you see you know the sort of Google like campus uh, the film was was pretty a pretty poor adaptation in my opinion but uh, in the book you see the uh, the campus as this sort of uh, wealthy citadel you know and and you there's only hints at the I think they call it chaos and filth I think it's the language you use outside the campus um, not unlike our, our discussion of like national parks so there's like this sacred space and then this profane space and there's a, a yeah, weird relationship in Silicon Valley things like real world Google campus or Amazon headquarters or whatever yeah. it may be those are sort of sacred spaces for mm-hmm. capitalism right those right. are that is kind of the holy land churches in the religion of capitalism yeah yeah and uh, I was thinking of like just returning to, to to what I said to talk about myself for a minute um, it kind of made me think of the way I was talking about it of you know, why the fuck is is bureaucracy still a thing in this world and it kind of made me think of the way we talk about movies because I feel like most people um, it's still the case where they talk about it they don't get into the world of the film they just say why is why did they make it like that Mm-hmm. Right? Why did this person do this thing? So instead of pointing at it and saying, um, "Why does why is the film telling me that bureaucracy would still be around? That's bullshit. Everybody would go crazy and mm-hmm. do it." Uh, instead, saying, "Well, why is that world in the film like that?" Right. Right. So so giving it some sort of um, autonomy versus saying like, "Why did Corone do that?" Right. Mm-hmm. Why would a director choose to do that? But instead, um, giving the world some kind of autonomy. Um, and I think it's important to do, to do that when you're looking at uh, any film, really, but especially dystopian stuff like this that is speculative and is, is, is making some sort of statement about the now, but also kind of projecting it into the future in some way, um, like an interstellar or whatever. It's be like, oh, Christopher Nolan's a shitty writer. Why would he put all this right. um, negative ecological stuff or, well, anti-ecological stuff in here? Um, but instead of thinking about well, why is that world like that? Why, mm-hmm. why are those characters like that? And, and you see, I think just just to respond to that very literally in that film, I think it's anxiety because because we are such a technologically saturated culture. If technology is not the way climate change is solved, then we are fucked. And so and so this that movie is going to expel any notion of like returning to some sort of pastoralism or, or agriculture as you know as a sort of integral part of of the fix because it's it, it's you know it's not agriculture anymore it's agribusiness mm-hmm. um, so yeah I, I think just in that particular example it's those choices are made out of a Perceived, or, you know, a consciously perceived or an unconsciously, you know, some, something unconscious uh, anxiety about what you know, uh, what will actually be our our reaction to climate catastrophe, like the movie shows. And that's why um, the infertility and in children of men has such a powerful sort of narrative structure, 
because it's implied that technology and science and, and industry have already failed, right? That it's been 18 years, like they're not accomplishing anything. Or it's it's like Marcuse says, uh, I read earlier, the things they're accomplishing are the shitty things you're seeing. This mass <laughs> yeah. incarceration and, and bombings and, you know, all that stuff. That is the accomplishment. That's not a relapse. That is a progressive accomplishment of industry, science, and technology. Yeah, I mean, he mentioned in that the passage you read that the atomic bomb, which took, you know, years and like Einstein, the brain power right. of all the the most brilliant minds from the United States and from around the world to to do what to build this device that can destroy the world for what purpose? War? <laughs> like, what, what the fuck are we doing? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's we think if we can, we should. It's a Jurassic Park thing, right? Right. Well, it's, uh, it makes me think of uh, Amish culture. Like people, people think the Amish are just like ignorant of technology and that they don't use technology, but they do use technology. It's just that they intentionally allow it or disallow it. And so, if if they think there is something they can integrate into their a piece of technology they can integrate into the community without it causing harm, then they will allow it. They're not anti-technology. They're anti-disintegrating community. Um, Whereas we just try to figure out ways that we can sort of try to regulate it in some kind of... like Or somebody does. Like we said last week, it's like, there's no vote no. on technology. It just shows up one day, right? Yeah. So... <laughs> Um, if you talk to any teacher that's been teaching through the transition to the smartphone, that's like the single biggest, um, it can be a benefit, but most of the time distraction or, you know, some sort of, um, negative factor within your classroom. Right. Um, to the point where older professors will just say like, no phones, don't bring them in, don't Mm -hmm. use them, that sort of stuff. Um, and newer teachers at all levels are kind of more lenient or they'll have students do projects where they use a phone in the classroom right so instead of allowing or disallowing it's more of it's not how do we shape it's how do we shape society to fit in this technology that is inevitable right how do we bring it in because we're not it's too too far now right the the pandora's box has been open um so now how do we fit it into our society how do we make it a tool rather than an ideology yeah but yeah. then when you talk about things like the atomic bomb, what's the utility? Well, well, exactly. That's, that's the exact opposite of what I'm talking about. Like, you know, the point of, you know, research and development, science, industry, is to benefit humanity, right? To, to make things easier somehow. Um, or better, not just easier, better. And... What could be a worse example of that than a bomb that kills everyone? <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> you know? But it, it, it is in many ways the height of technical achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of makes you think about the end of the film when the tomorrow shows up, the ship. Um, it makes you think, you know, it, it looks like Team Zisu is all over the, the, the boat. Uh, it makes you think of what happens now, right? Like, are they succeeding in their mission to, you know, fix the fertility issue? Um, are they going to be any more helpful than the fishes or the government were or might have been? Um, it, and that's kind of the 
there's that moment, the really great moment at the end when Theo has died and it's just Key and the baby on the boat. And I feel like if he wanted to get really into the ambiguity of the film, he could just end it there, just have her like in the boat waiting. But Mm -hmm. then, you know, the tomorrow comes and you have some sort of hopeful ending. Um, But at the same time, it's still very ambiguous of, well, okay, now what? Yeah. Like, even if they fix the fertility problem. Yeah. um, Yeah, but it just, it makes you think of, well, okay, if the entire entirety of civilization pretty much has collapsed, then, okay, you fix the fertility problem, what do we do now? Do we rebuild? Is it Mad Max? What happens? And that's interesting, because we've been talking about history and sort of cultural context and, and Zizek, you know, sort of brings those issues up, but he also says what he thinks so brilliant about the ending and the, why it's on a boat is it it's, you know, free floating. Yeah. It's not rooted. Yeah. It's not rooted. And so you kind of have to start over because we see where that history led us. And so it's, it's a kind of radical rejection of, it's weird. It sort of argues for for history and you know culture but not in not our in particular brand of yeah. it yeah not in the way it's been structured in the past right uh, instead you know going into something new um which i think is kind of if we're going to do anything about climate change or anything else it's kind of what we have to do it's a, like we were talking about reconsidering these relationalities between one another between us and the environment between us and um you know what does it mean to live a good life do you need to have the new iphone every six months or is it okay if you don't have one at all or something right um do we have to be so deeply entrenched and entwined in this you know system of of fossil capital and all these other systems or is there some kind of other way that I won't say better or worse, but just different, more helpful in averting these kinds of catastrophes that, you know, will occur. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know if we've talked about it, but just a, a recognition of limitations. This is something Wendell Berry talks a lot about, and he calls it propriety, you know, the sense of there being a... A correct way to live and, and not in a moral sense but just in a pragmatic uh, environmental sense of like some things are conducive to human and environmental health and some things are not and and in Children of Men you definitely see uh, Quran diagnose our culture as not a, a, a way of being in the world that is uh, within those limitations that define uh, health, and and their this uh, starting over, this tomorrow, uh, I guess we're left to hope that the the new iteration will be something within that scope of of health. Anyway, I feel like I'm sort of rambling. <laughs> well, no, it's important because that, that's the big thing is is the idea of being in the world and how are you existing in the world like what and and thinking about it beyond just your personal comfort or your personal desire um, and it's something we're not really good at um, plenty of people just want to kick back and watch the new Marvel movie or watch Game of Thrones as, a, as I was nice. leaving as I was leaving to come record this my friend said told me uh, 
you know, she was surprised I was I was going to do something because Game of Thrones was about to come on. <laughs> she, said, she said, anybody who's anybody will be watching Game of Thrones like, I guess you're nobody. Then. I was like, what? Okay. Um, that's um, a very kind of... That is kind of a nostalgic throwback to like the the nineties or early two thousands when people would still watch or or like TV the fifties when there was three channels and like everyone watched the same shows and it was like water cooler discussion. The end of Mash, <laughs> right? Um, so yeah, the, there's plenty of people that would just watch Game of Thrones and not worry about it, right? Like uh, Nigel, his cousin. I just I just don't think about I just it. Don't think about it. Um, but a big problem is that. You, you have to think about it you have to have some sort of some sort of opinion and beyond that you have to I think have some sort of creative view right uh, in the sense of how do we change not just say change the world is a little bit too too nebulous but say you know what can I do to sort of change my relationship to the world in order to you know make it a tad bit better tiny little bit better uh, to make some sort of positive impact, and so and so one big question. I think we sort of talked about this in the very first episode is what framework is informing, you know, the assumption that we're we're both making here of good and better and positive. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, and and yeah, I think we brought that up in relation to Gosh and his comments about religion and you know not being subject to forms of reason and and enlightenment principles of rationality and and all that implies um yeah i mean because one question you could you could ask watching children men is why is humanity worth saving it's just sort of taken as given you see this sort of built-in reverence even these soldiers have towards this new life um and, what could it, and you could say like, oh, maybe it's um, just sort of the human instinct to reproduce, biological, yeah, yeah or or maybe just like relief of oh, well, maybe maybe we'll continue on. Um, but like, why it, it, you're gonna die? Your individual death. <laughs> you yeah. know what I'm saying? And so it's a, I mean, just to say that, just to say that life is worth living is a sort of religious. You know, spiritual claim. Um, it really is because I mean, any sort of value judgment is is kind of a you know is sort of informed by a religious understanding of the world, and that's not to say a, a world historical religion. You know, some particular you know Christianity or, or whatever. Um, but it's a mytholo- maybe mythological is a better word a, a mythological understanding of the world and I think part of answering is trying to answer the question of you know what does a, a better world or a better version of the world look like or whatever it may be would be to, to strip it down right and to try to get some sort of core kind of idea so saying um you know what? What do you really like about being alive? Like, in your opinion, what makes being alive a good thing? Right. It so, reminds me of the end of uh, Manhattan, Woody Allen's Manhattan, where he's like <laughs> recording himself, and he's like, "Well, I guess it's just like 
certain things, you know, very, <laughs> but it, but it's, it's beautiful in some ways too, because it's, it's so particular. It's the things he lists are so specific. Yeah. He's like sentimental education by Flaubert, you know, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, boiling that down even more. Well, what about that? Right. So saying people will be like, well, I really like having, you know, my, my, I, the newest iPhone or well, what do you like about it? Well, it's just really convenient and it's entertaining. Oh, so you like to be entertained and just sort of breaking it down right. and getting down to it and say, well, you can still have those things, just not in that specific form, mm-hmm. right? And saying, well, a better thing would be, well, how do we find that same kind of whatever it is that you're so, that you think makes life worth living? How do we find that in a form that is less harmful to other people, to the environment, to our progeny, right? It, it, it reminds me of an article I read several years ago about uh, food addictions and how people don't understand that it's it's just as much the like the context in which they eat or the habits in which they eat that they're addicted to as opposed to the particular foods they eat and how you can you know, let's say you eat a cookie every day at three o'clock from the vending machine how after if you sort of wean yourself off for three weeks and at that time you eat an apple instead of a cookie you'll you'll get the same sense of satisfaction because it's really just like the habit of having that thing, you know, that small pleasure at that time of the day, as opposed to, you know, what are, you know, whatever cookies made out of the chocolate or whatever. <laughs> um, it's, it's not the chocolate. It's just, it's the routine yeah. uh, that they find the pleasure. Yeah. Well, Okay. I did not think that that was how our discussion of children <laughs> the, was going to end. About my food. cookies versus the pleasure apples. of food. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So that, that pretty much wraps it up. That um, would be. In, I I didn't even think about like the food in Children of Men. Yeah. I, I I'm not sure if that's relevant, but I also shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It reminded me of Die shoes. Hard. Where he's like, you know, going through this badass experience, shoeless. Yeah. Um, so, uh, next week we're going to be doing something a little bit different than what we've been doing. So, up until now, we've been just going through a single film. Um, but next week, we're going to focus more on a specific director. All tour um, week. And, uh, yeah, all tour <laughs> week. Uh, and the one that we've picked, is it's a little bit strange, but... Indie Darling. Indie Darling, uh, one Clint Eastwood, um, specifically the, the latter Eastwood. Um, post nine eleven, post nine eleven, hyper patriotic, yeah, um, old boomer brained Clint Eastwood, um, specifically talking about like Gran Torino, American Sniper, the fifteen seventeen to Paris, maybe even the Mule, just yeah. kind of whatever we can um, digest by three, <laughs> yeah, um, and it might end up being a, a double episode just because we'll probably rant about it for a long time, and plus there's so many movies, but just getting at this idea of how did Clint Eastwood go from Dirty Harry to right wing auteur or even or even in, in a couple of years go from Million Dollar Baby to <laughs> to you know American Sniper yeah which is in many ways maybe the most problematic and deeply racist films to be nominated for best picture um, since uh, Birth of a Nation yeah. in 1913 or whatever it was yeah um, so looking at Clint Eastwood um, through through the lens that we usually do, so um, uh, 
climate, ecological stuff, also sort of like social, uh, political type stuff. Since um, Green Book. <laughs> what? I said since Green Book. Since Green Book. Yeah. Racist movies. Um, so we'll be looking at some some Eastwood. So so strap in for that. Strap on for Eastwood. We're gonna get an empty chair and pretend he's in it and yell at it. I I, I can't do that. <laughs> fucking Clint Eastwood. Uh, so <laughs> fucking Relian pisses fucking me Relian. off. <laughs> so um, if we ever start making T-shirts, we'll we'll put that on. <laughs> so follow us on Twitter at Anthropod Tweets. Um, as always, available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and the the Spotify. And um, next week, Clint Eastwood get hype. Yeah. Do you feel lucky?